You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. I want to invite you to turn open your Bibles once again to the Gospel of Matthew, where we are picking up our study in Matthew chapter 9, where we will be looking at verses 35 through 38 as we come very close now to closing out our focus on Jesus as the King of Miracles. In fact, this will be our last message from this series before we enter a new section in Matthew, as I'll talk about in a a moment here. But follow along with me as I read for us, beginning in verse 35. Matthew writes, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. John Patton is a name that comes up a lot when people talk about missionaries, and that is because he is an inspiring example of someone who was willing to go where no one else would go, and in order to reach a people that no one else would go dare dare go near. Let me tell you a little bit about his story. When John Patton was 32 years old, he decided to leave Scotland to become a missionary to a cannibalistic group of people in the South Seas. Interestingly, 19 years before he decided to do this, two other missionaries had gone to the the same area, but sadly were eaten by people on one of the islands. In spite of this, the tribal people showed a remarkable responsiveness to the gospel so that just a few years after the missionaries' deaths, one of the murderer's sons was building a church and another was preaching the gospel. Patton then decided to, I guess you could say, pick up where these missionaries left off. And as you might imagine, he was the only person willing to do this. Plenty of people thought he was crazy. Some even thought to talk him out of it. One such person was actually a respected elder in Patton's church named Mr. Dixon, who assured Patton that if he did go to these people, he would certainly be eaten by cannibals. Patton, however, had this to say to Mr. Dixon. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And with that, Patton left for the work along with his wife just 14 days after they got married. How would you like to be 
a new bride getting shipped on over to an island that you've never lived in among cannibals. But she was willing to go and join Patton on this missionary expedition. And certainly it wouldn't take long until they would experience severe challenges. In fact, only a year or so into this ministry, sadly, Patton would lose his wife, Mary, to pneumonia. And a few days later, his newborn son, John. Naturally, no one would fault Patton if he had some regrets by this point. But he didn't. In fact, he even wrote of his experience saying, quote, feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to err in anything that he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work, end quote. And so Patton continued for the next four years proclaiming the gospel, seeking to reach the Tannese people. One biographer summarized Patton's experience this way. He said, Patton was in constant fear for his life, yet over and over again his faith sustained him in, most, in the most threatening and frightening situations. While there was a missionary on the other side of the island, John was inaccessible and alone to persuade the Tannese towards Christ as he moved from one savage crisis to the next. Fourteen times, we're told, Patton contracted a severe fever. Many times, he was ambushed by tribesmen. In fact, this happened so frequently that he slept in his clothes. Even worse, though, was that most natives were not receptive to the gospel except for one chief. Thankfully, however, it was the chief that would warn Patton when angry tribesmen were on their way to kill him. Certainly much more could be said of Patton's life, but this is how we remember him today, as a man who was willing to sacrifice everything, even his own life if necessary, for the sake of the gospel. Stories like this, they're good for us to hear, aren't they? Because they remind us that we as Christians are called to live a very different kind of life, and certainly with a very different kind of mission than everyone else in the world. To be sure, few of us will become missionaries like John Patton, but the fact remains each and every one of us is still called to live on mission for Jesus wherever he happens to place us. The question, however, that we must all ask ourselves is this, what does this mean for me and what, does this, what, what should this or will this look like in my life? We think about these things from time to time, don't we? I mean, we all understand that Jesus has given us a mission. We all understand he's called us to be on this mission. But there's still these times what, where we maybe think to ourselves, well, just, I'm, just, I'm just a nobody. I'm not... I'm not a John Patton. I'm not anybody famous. So how should I truly cultivate this mission in my life? Well, this morning, we're going to bring some clarity, hopefully, to some of these questions as we really just take time to meditate on the ministry of Jesus. Keep in mind, as I said uh, when I opened things up here, that we are transitioning into a new section 
but that means we kind of have a, a foot on both sides of the line. We, we still have our toes in the last section, but we're starting to put them now in the next section. So this morning we're looking at a transitional text. So it wraps up the last section, but it leads us to the next section. And all of this makes sense when we look at these verses. Keep in mind, though, that, that we've seen a lot in Matthew thus far, haven't we? First, we looked at Jesus' unique credentials to be God's king in chapters 1 through 4. And then we looked at Jesus' authoritative teaching as God's king in chapters 5 through 7. And then we looked at Jesus' power as God's king in chapters 8 through 9. Now we're going to start looking at Jesus' mission as God's king. And that's what is going to occupy our attention until we finish chapter 12. That said, as we cover today's text, here's how I want us to move through it. What I want us to notice are three aspects of Jesus, how Jesus approaches ministry. Three aspects of how Jesus approaches ministry, meaning either how Jesus does ministry himself and what we see from his life or how he instructs others to do it. So that's our outline if you are a note taker. So then... Let us begin with this, the first aspect of Jesus' approach to ministry. First, Jesus' pattern of ministry. Jesus' pattern of ministry. Look at verse 35. We read, And Jesus went through all, throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, you might have noticed this, but this verse that we read here. It's, it's not new in Matthew. You might remember that we encountered something very similar in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Let me read that verse for you. It says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. As you can tell, today's verse... Matthew 9, verse 23, and Matthew 4, verse 23, they're almost identical, aren't they? And so we go, well, why is this the case? Well, quite simply, because they are, they are bookends to section. Uh, once again, preparing us for something new. So in chapter 4, this verse prepares the reader for the Sermon on the Mount just after Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist and launched into ministry. And here it prepares us for Jesus sending out messengers. So, one thing you'll notice about both of these verses is that they are summary statements regarding the ministry of Christ. As such, we certainly see that they capture the core of what Jesus' ministry was all about. That said, Matthew uses three words which explain the ministry of Jesus. And what are they? Matthew says that Jesus was teaching, preaching, or proclaiming, those are same words, and healing. So those were the activities of Jesus' ministry. Those were the things that he did day in and day out. Those were the things that dominated his time, his energy, and his attention. And why? Why? Well, because they were all activities which centered on the gospel. 
the good news about how God reconciles sinners to himself through Jesus Christ. And the gospel, of course, is the reason that Jesus came. In other words, the passion of Jesus' heart and the substance of Jesus' ministry was this, that everywhere he went, in everything he did, he sought to promote, present, demonstrate, declare, and teach the gospel. Thinking on that, however, what do we know was the most central part of his ministry or the most central activity? To some people's surprise, it was not the healing, but rather the teaching and the preaching. That was the hallmark. That was the foundation. That was most central. I once heard a preacher say that God had one and only one son, and what did he do with him? He made him a preacher. Yes, miracles were present. Yes, Jesus healed. But again, why did he heal? As we have mentioned, Before, it was to prove who he was. All of his miracles were to validate the very person that he was. When he healed, it was evidence that he indeed was the Messiah. As he healed people, they could see that this truly was the one promised in the Old Testament that God said he would send. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is God's one true King. It's all clear, as made evident by his works. And it's important that we emphasize these things, because the miracles, as you might recall, they became problematic for Jesus, didn't they? In a number of ways. Sure, they attracted crowds, but they also attracted some other things, didn't they? Namely, they also attracted superficial followers, So, eventually, over the course of Jesus' ministry, what do we observe? Well, people would just show up because of just wanting healing. Or they would show up because they wanted to see a spectacle. Or they would show up because, hey, they wanted a free meal, and they heard that, uh, you know, Jesus, he's able to take just a few loaves and some fish and multiply them. Maybe we can go to Jesus' buffet today, right? Right? You had all sorts of different people coming to Jesus for different reasons, but the sad part was few really had any interest in surrendering their lives to him and following him as Lord. And it's interesting, right, because today the problem remains the same, doesn't it? Even today, people treat Jesus like he's some version of Santa Claus. They don't really want Jesus as much as they want what Jesus can give them. So they pray to him when things are especially difficult in life or they start showing up to church when they're going through trials. But as soon as things lighten up and they get the wishes of their heart, then what happens? All of a sudden, no more interest in Jesus. No interest in prayer. No interest in reading the Bible. No interest in going to church. Those are all evidences of someone who has uh, a view of Jesus that treats him like Santa Claus or a genie in a bottle. But this, Jesus will not be okay with, will he? Because it is not why he came. He didn't come to give everyone the desires of their heart. He came to be a savior for sinners. And so, 
how does he make sure to thin out the crowds when they seem to multiply and become so many? He teaches and he preaches and he teaches and he preaches and he teaches and he preaches. And oh man, do the, the crowds thin out, don't they? Because Jesus is a preacher who is committed to telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He was not interested in tickling people's ears. He was not too concerned about making them feel comfortable. He preached the truth of God's word without apology. And this meant not only, of course, explaining who he was and what he came to do as God's one true appointed king who had descended from David, but it also meant telling them that there was going to be a cost if they were going to truly become one of his disciples. That if they were to have eternal life, if they were to experience the blessings of God, then this they had to do, they had to surrender everything. They had to turn their back on their sin. They had to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So teaching was the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry. Therefore, it is the first thing he would do when he came to a community, wasn't it? We see that in our text today. Matthew tells us about what Jesus' pattern was. We are told that the first thing he would do when he came into community, a community was what? He'd find a synagogue, and ministry would start there. Now, this might seem a little peculiar because at Harvest Plains Church, we don't let random people just show up and teach. But in Jesus' day, it could very well be the case that you show up to worship, and all of a sudden, you know, some guy gets up to teach, and you go, I, I don't really know who he is. It was just part of their practice, though. It didn't mean that they let just anyone get up and teach, but they had a policy known as the freedom of the synagogue, which would allow for visiting rabbis or dignitaries or other qualified men to get up and teach the word of God. And so Jesus would use this policy to his advantage. You might remember there's somebody else, particularly in the book of Acts, who does the same thing. Remember who it is? It's the Apostle Paul. This is the pattern that we see throughout Acts. Paul comes into a community, he starts at the synagogue, and then he works his way out from there. And it makes sense, because, of course, this is just kind of low-hanging fruit, right? I mean, you are a Jew, and you go to where Jewish people gather, who are all doing a Jewish thing, worshiping on Saturdays, and therefore you have a captive audience guaranteed in every community, at least at one point during the week. And from there, then... They would cover the rest of the community throughout the rest of the week. So that's Jesus' pattern in ministry. Now let's look at Jesus' motivation in ministry. His motivation in ministry. Look at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, we're told he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you ever have those moments when you see other people and you think, I wonder what this person is actually like? You know, when nobody else is looking or when maybe they're around their family. Throughout my life, I've had this thought come up many times. For instance, I remember thinking this a lot about my teachers in high school. 
Sometimes I'd think, you know, this person seems really boring and they're not all that fun in the classroom. I wonder if they're like this at home. But I've also wondered this about other people, famous people. If you've ever been to D.C., you've probably had that thought, right? You're looking at the White House and you kind of think to yourself, like, wonder what it would be like to just walk in the shoes of the president for the day. You know, and, and you have all this press about the president and, and people saying this or that, but I wonder what those closest to the president would say. You know, the maids and the butlers, which I'm sure they don't function by either of those names, but people helping take care of the White House. What would they say about the president? Or a guy like Elon Musk, you know, he seems fun. He's got a lot of gadgets and gizmos and toys, right? He's just this creative genius, and you're like, he seems like a cool guy. What would it be like to hang out with him for a day? What is he like in more private settings? Well, here's what I love about the Gospels, because what they do is they expose us to what Jesus is truly like. Like not, not merely in his public ministry, we see that, but who he is in his very character. And Matthew can speak about this with a certain amount of authority, right? Because Matthew spent a whole lot of time around Jesus. You might remember Matthew, the guy who wrote this book, he was a tax collector. He was hated by the Jews of his day. He was considered to be a sellout. And then one day Jesus invites him um, to follow him. And he does, and for three years, he walks with Jesus, eats with Jesus, becomes one of Jesus' most close ministry companions and friends. And so here he is, he's describing the character of Jesus, and what does he say of him? That he had compassion for people. He had compassion for people. In other words, Jesus had a heart for people because people were on his heart. And when he saw them suffer or in danger, how did he react? It literally tore him up inside. That's the idea of compassion. It means to feel something in the depths of your being or in the pit of your stomach. In other words, it is a physical or visceral response to seeing someone you care for suffer. And this defined Jesus. He loved people. He cared for people. He had sympathy for people. And it motivated everything that he did. Certainly, it was not the only thing that motivated Jesus' ministry We know that he was also motivated to do his Father's will. We learn that in John 6. He was also motivated to share the Father's love. We learn that in John 15 and 17. He was also motivated to save people from future condemnation. We're also told he was motivated by the joy that was set before him, which is why he endured the cross. But among all of these things motivating Jesus, what else? that he had compassion for people. And we saw that as we covered chapter 8 and chapter 9, didn't we? All sorts of people coming to Jesus, hurt, broken, 
completely desperate. And it didn't matter who came to him, he was willing to care for them. Whether it was a leper, a centurion, a paralytic, a woman with an issue of blood, demon-oppressed men, because Jesus has compassion. That said, let's notice why Jesus has concern or compassion for this particular group, because we're told that, aren't we? We're told that it was because, as he looked at the people around him, that they were harassed and helpless. I want to dwell on this for a moment because our English translations don't necessarily do the best job at bringing out the full force of these words. For example, originally the word for harassed meant flayed. Flayed. We use this uh, word most commonly when we talk about flaying fish. The idea of flaying means to cut something open. So, There's a lot more violent connotation to it than simply that they are harassed. This is the same uh, that would be true also of the word helpless. It wasn't so much even that they were just bothered by people, but it was that they were being attacked day after day after day So you have the violent part where they are being flayed, that they're being attacked, that they're being prodded and pricked and all of these things by enemies, but then you have helpless, which is really the idea of thrown down. That's what the word helpless means in other contexts. For example, we see this same word used in Acts 27, verse 19, We're told there, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This is the moment where Paul is on a ship with other people, and they shipwreck, and he's saying, like, there's only one way you're going to survive. You need to get rid of all of this stuff on the boat. So they're throwing stuff over. Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, in this moment, it describes what Judas did after he betrayed Christ. And it says, And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. Against the same word, the idea of throwing down. So that's the picture. What Jesus is saying of these people is he has compassion for them, Because he sees how they are defenseless because they're being attacked, they're being knocked over, they're they're on their back, and it's just like a pack of wolves on top of them. As you can imagine, it was not exactly a positive assessment of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, was it? But this is not the first time this has happened, as we know when we read the Old Testament, because there were many times that this occurred in Israel's history. Let me just explain some of the ways that God himself spoke into this problem. For starters, let's consider Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 2. We read this, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, 
So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. We also see this problem mentioned in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners seek lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Jeremiah 23, we read this as well. Starting in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my young, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Different in Jeremiah, though, and we need to see this, that at the same time as there is an indictment against the leaders, there's also this promise of hope that one day this is not how things will always be. Notice what God says in verse 3 of Jeremiah 23, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So, for far too many years, the people of Israel were wandering. They were defenseless, and more than that, they were attacked by so-called false shepherds. But the promise here from Jeremiah is clear. One day this would not always be the case. One day all of that would be changed when God would send good God-glorifying, committed, faithful shepherds. And of course, who would be the first and the foremost of these shepherds? Without question, it would be Jesus himself. And it is why he is called the good shepherd. Because he comes and he cares for the sheep and he lays down his life for the sheep. But this would just be the starting point, of course, because what would Jesus do? He would raise up other shepherds. And then those shepherds would raise up other shepherds. And those shepherds would raise up more shepherds. The whole hope of the gospel in the world very much depends on faithful shepherds being raised up and sent out. Pastors themselves are to be shepherds. In fact, the word pastor literally means Shepherd. It literally means shepherd. And so when we get to the New Testament, not surprisingly, we hear a lot of shepherd language used. One particular place that we hear this is in 1 Peter 5. Let me read for you there. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you, which is just a, elders, just another word used interchangeably for pastor. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, here's what Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He's saying to these elders, care for the flock, feed the flock, love the flock, 
and how. Next, Peter explains exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So God is the chief shepherd. Every pastor is to be an under-shepherd. And certainly they will be those who have to give an account for how they shepherd the flock of God. And today, if you haven't noticed, we still have a shortage of such faithful shepherds, don't we? The church still needs more faithful shepherds. In fact, there has never been enough given that the harvest is plentiful. There wasn't enough in Jesus' own day. There's still not enough today. Therefore, what does Jesus tell us to do about this predicament? Well, that's our next aspect of the way Jesus approaches ministry. So let's turn now to look at that. The third thing I want to point out for you today is Jesus' prayer for ministry. Jesus' prayer for ministry. Look at verse 37. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So we get it. There's a need for shepherds. There's a need for people to faithfully teach and preach the gospel. There's a need for people to come and care for the saints, to equip them for the work of ministry, to carry the burden of God's heart to God's people. And how are we to see more people raised up? Jesus tells us very clearly right here that we are to pray for God to send such shepherds. It is the only command, the only imperative in this text, so we better get this right. Jesus commands us to pray for shepherds. And the word used here, daomai, quite literally means to beg or to plead. It's not simply a polite asking. It is a reverent and earnest prayer that we are to pray. To give understanding of how this word is used in other places, consider how it's used in Luke 5, verse 12. In this moment, we're told of one of the demon-oppressed men who come before him and they fall on his face and then he says, this demon-oppressed man, he falls before Jesus on his face and he begs him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Excuse me, that's the leper that comes and begs for him. Luke 8 is the demon-oppressed man. In verse 28, when he saw Jesus, the man cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. I beg you. So we ought to beg God for workers in the gospel. And certainly when we read something like this, it also should be an encouragement for us. Because if God tells us to pray for something, then what can we expect that God will do? He'll answer it. Many of you have kids. I assume that you, you have had some parenting moments where, you know, like the kid is going to go and they're going to try and help themselves to maybe, I don't know, grabbing the cereal off the top shelf of the food pantry, you know, and you know they're going to make a mess of it. And so, and they do, and then later you're going, 
you know, there was a lot easier way to handle this. All you had to do was ask, and I would have grabbed it for you. This is what God is saying when it comes to shepherds. I would be so glad to give them to you, but I, I'm, I'm calling on you to ask. I understand, and when we think about this, certainly we see two, two aspects of what life is like on this planet, right? That we have human responsibility. At the same time, we have divine sovereignty. And there's always a mystery with these two things. We see what God commands, what he's asking us to do, and at the same time, we see how he delivers Prayer is always a mystery in some ways, in many ways. But you know what is not mysterious? God answers prayer because he's promised to do it. And here's what we see is that prayer is the means to accomplish his will on earth. And frankly, as I read this text, I'm a little bit convicted. I'm a little bit convicted because... For the last several years, I have tried to do everything to pour into men and to see shepherds and to see men raised up who would carry forth the Word of God to their families and carry it forth to their workplaces. And so, you know, that was one of the first things I did three years ago when we started Harvest Plains Church was meeting with men regularly. And listen, that's good and fine, But here's the deal, Then this is where I'm convicted, that when I read this text, here's what I am taught, that we can can do everything that we want in terms of having Bible studies and teaching people theology. But yet, what is the starting place of seeing shepherds and laborers for the gospel raised up? It's actually not in the imparting of the knowledge so much as it is in the praying before God. And asking him to send more workers. So, we've looked at these different aspects, and I want to come back to this question now. And it's the question I asked at the beginning of the sermon What does it look what does it look like for me to live on mission for Jesus? And what should this look like in my life? I think as we have looked at these different aspects of how Jesus approaches ministry, we see three very, very appropriate applications. And let me give them to you. This is really the starting point, you could say. There's so much more we could say about living on mission for Jesus, but this is, I think, a great starting point for every one of us. You want to make a difference for Christ? You want to live For him, this is where you start. First, you prioritize the gospel. You prioritize the gospel. You prioritize the gospel in everything you do. You think about how am I personally preaching the gospel to those around me? You have friendships. You have family members who don't know Jesus. Are you sharing the gospel with them? You think, well, you know, I don't, we got a good thing going. You know, like, I like the peace that we have in this relationship right now. Or I really enjoy it when we, you know, just play board games. Okay, I can appreciate 
enjoying all of that time, but the fact is, are they going to heaven? Are they? Because there's only one way that they are going to go to heaven, and that, and that is if they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, do you share the gospel with them? Do you use that relationship in order to promote Christ, or are you just in the relationship really for yourself? Because frankly, as Christians, that's revealed pretty quickly if we think about things. If we're unwilling to, to tell someone about Jesus, it's a perfect revealer of really what we're interested in in the relationship. So first, you prioritize the gospel. Secondly, you care for souls. You care for souls. And this certainly goes along with prioritizing the gospel, but this is what I mean by caring for souls. Not just caring for people, but you care for their true spiritual condition. Jesus was burdened as he thought about the spiritual state of these people and the fact that they didn't have a shepherd and there was no one to take care of them. So we are to prioritize the gospel. We are to care for souls. But lastly, what are we to do? We are to pray for workers. We are to pray for workers. Dear friends, one thing that we have had a burden for at this church since we started is to plant more churches. But there's only one way that that happens, and it starts with faithful laborers in the gospel being raised up. And we as a church are even at kind of an exciting moment because we are about to, um, Lord willing, appoint some elders in the next several months, and we'll be walking through that process, which is why I'll be teaching a uh, special series just on spiritual leadership. So we're already having conversations uh, among our Converge lead team meeting, um, that is to say other pastors who are connected to Converge, we're already talking about, okay, Harvest Plains Church has been planted, but there are still communities across North Dakota that have a need for Bible-preaching, gospel-believing churches. And so now our next hope is, well, we're looking at Valley City. And, and all of us pastors from the region are thinking about how we will partner together and do this work together. But no matter how much strategizing we do, no matter how many conversations we have, and frankly, even no matter how much money is raised, you know what our biggest obstacle is going to be? Finding a church planter. It's always the hardest thing to find. A good shepherd cannot be bought or paid with enough money a good shepherd must be raised up by god it must be a gift from his hand and so therefore church we need to pray for such shepherds this is the starting point of missions and i pray that this week as you go that it would fuel everything that you do this week thank you so much for listening we hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.